Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The following program is presented by the Nerdy Show Podcast Network. Geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. All Nerdy Show programming is made possible by A Comic Shop, Orlando's number one comic shop and nerd destination. Nerdapalooza, the world's largest nerd music festival, and with the generous support of listeners like you. For more Nerdy Show podcasts, community forums, and learn how you can support this and other fine Nerdy Show programming, visit nerdyshow.com. Hi there, this is Matt Frank, artist on Godzilla Rulers of Earth, and art director for Kaiju Combat, and you're listening to Nerdy Show. Welcome to Nerdy Show, a weekly podcast dedicated to every facet of nerddom, from comics and video games to science and technology. If it's geeky, we've got it covered. Hi, I'm Cap. Hi, I'm Tony. Hi, I'm Brandon. Hi, I'm Jonathan. Hi, I'm Andrew. They're the twins from Wicked Anime, and this is an episode of Nerdy Show, where we are finally going to talk with Travis Beecham, the screenwriter for Pacific Rim. Yeah, and Andrew and I are going to be the Raleigh and Yancey of this episode. We haven't decided which one's going to be Yancey yet. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, Pacific Rim... We've been talking about on the show best uh, movie of the summer. as before it came out, after it came out. I agree, Tony. I think it is the best movie of the summer. No real competition, honestly. And we did an episode earlier this year called How I Met Your Mothra about giant monsters and their natural enemies. And we were trying to get Travis on the show, but things did not work out. There was this weird embargo on like, hey, you can't interview him this early because you're going to talk about Pacific Rim. We're like, he was no, busy being famous. We're just going to talk about Kaiju. destroyed his house. Anyway, Warner Brothers is being weird, but we finally got him on the show. And now that the movie's out, well, now we've got an awful lot to talk about. (laughs) And yes, yes, we will. Why fuck around? Let's talk to Travis Beecham. Let's bring him in here. Let's do it. Dude, it is so great to finally have you on the show. It's great to be on. You wrote the movie about the robots and and the giant things. That was that was cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I think uh, nobody was really more surprised than me when it finally got made. When you start off doing it, you know, you have to sort of be committed and be a true believer and not even think about the possibility that it's not going to happen. But then at some point after it's all done and you're at the premiere, the premiere party, you turn around and you look around and you're like... Wow, that that actually happened. The outs were sort of slim, but it came together. You've been working on a lot of big projects tied to big names for a while now, like uh, Killing on Carnival Row, which has had Del Toro and Neil Jordan attached to it, a remake of Disney's Black Hole, but only a scattering of these projects have come to completion. I mean, I imagine Pacific Rim becoming what it was is like a huge relief. Yeah, and I, I, I should say, too, as a working screenwriter, I think one of the biggest surprises that I had coming out here and making a career of it is that you can be a working screenwriter and make a living on this and never have any movie made like that's totally possible wait you make you make <laughs> um, money doing this uh, yeah you get paid for the work you do brandon you know what 
<laughs> that's incredible actually yeah 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 and it, well yeah it's stunning you know the amount of stuff that gets just sort of set on or they'll pay you to do and, and they'll be like well we don't know what to do with it now because you know it's their money and I guess they can throw it around however they want to but most movies most scripts don't get made I think we can speak for um, not just ourselves here on the show but absolutely everybody attached to I think the entirety of the Nerdy Show Network. We're huge Pacific Rim fans, and it absolutely lived up to or surpassed our expectations. I believe the term is fanboy nut jobs, guys. <laughs> well, <laughs> we're really eager to find out your process for creating this, because what I feel is most successful about Pacific Rim is, one, it's a wholly original new property. I mean, sure, it's based on a bunch of stuff, but I mean, it's fresh. It's not a sequel yet. So... Um, <laughs> A huge dynamic world, a script that doesn't talk down to the audiences. Um, what I've been saying about it to people who who were like, "Oh, that movie with the robots and the monsters." Oh, sure, whatever. And I'll be like, "No, no, no, no. It's everything you want from a Hollywood blockbuster, except it doesn't treat you like an asshole." I've actually gotten in angry conversations with family members because they are they're like, "Oh, it's like that Transformers movie," and I'm like, "No, it's <laughs> not like that Transformers movie." <laughs> <laughs> that is a very familiar conversation to me, too. And I think from the beginning, I'd always been a fan of this sort of material. I, you know, I, I remember watching like Voltron when I was a little kid and all that. So I've always been a fan of like giant monster stuff and giant robot stuff. And I really wanted to see a modern, big budget summer movie sort of tackle that subgenre. But I wanted it to do it in such a way that placed people really at the center of it. Because one thing that I found to be really sort of baffling before I even saw any of the Transformers movie, just when they announced that they were doing a Transformers movie, I thought, well, sure. I mean, they sort of play as characters in cartoons, but when you have like actual real robots going around this big screen and talking to each other about stuff. Are they going to live as, a, as characters at all? And one thing I've always really liked about the next genre, distinguishing mechs from robots, is that, you know, there's suits of armor and there's people driving them. And, you know, at the end of the day, your story has to spotlight the problems of the people and has to figure out some way to be about the people. And then still have those awesome scenes where the giant things hit each other, because that's what everybody exactly. comes to see. <laughs> yeah, one of the major aspects that I actually really enjoyed about the movie is that even though, you know, you had the giant robots that were the big hit of the movie, they were the weapons Yet you didn't feel like all the characters were completely safe in them, which made all the action scenes more intense and made them extremely successful. A lot of that, I have to give credit to Guillermo. Initially, in the early phases of the idea, when I, when I first had the idea, and I think in the, in the first draft, they were tucked away in these little capsules, and I think they had, like, seats or something, you know. <laughs> I think it was Guillermo who had the idea. It's like, no, no, let's put them in this big rig and have them actually, like, duplicate all the motions. And when you're talking about an idea like that, right, like, out loud, you think, like, there's no way you can film that. You know, <laughs> there's absolutely <laughs> no way you can film that. But then, you know, I remember still remember going to set and seeing the whole room on hydraulics and seeing the actors hooked into this thing and it was just mind-boggling because they actually built it they built this whole cockpit of the jaeger and, and it was probably one of the most stunning sets that i've ever seen in my life or will ever see because you know guillermo del toro <laughs> <laughs> yeah you call it a torture chamber i think it was because just hearing all the actors talk about it they, they get this sort of 
far off look in their eye. <laughs> their head, like, my God. They reach for the alcohol they have just off camera. <laughs> yeah, it was an ordeal. But I like that about it because I, I think when you watch the movie, you can tell that it's an ordeal, you know, and, and you it has a sense of difficulty to it that I think really elevates the scenes inside the compot because otherwise you'd just be cutting to people just sort of sitting down like as if in a cockpit of a jet and, you know, just kind of looking over and talking or whatever. But having this whole rig built, it really lets you cut inside the machine more. And I think that's a good thing. Absolutely. And then, I mean, even just then from a storytelling perspective, one of the reasons that I felt that nobody was safe is the first fight we see has one of the pilots violently and frankly disturbingly ripped so yeah good job there yeah, <laughs> with, uh, terrorizing me and filling me with glee at the same time <laughs> i want to know about your experiences growing up with either kaiju or the mecha genre i mean you mentioned voltron already but what was the uh, what was the earliest giant monster film or television series or whatever that you connected with directly I think the earliest movie, really, that I remember seeing is one of the Godzilla movies. I want to say it was 85, but it may have been even an earlier one than that. That's like literally the first memory that I have of watching any kind of movie is seeing Godzilla stomp through a big city. And from then on, you know, like I just really ate that stuff up. You know, not only all, all the Toho stuff, all the countless Godzilla movies, but also Gamera. And really, you know, American movies, like the stuff that Ray Harryhausen did, like if it had a giant monster in it, I was all about it as a kid. That Those are basically the only kind of movies that I watched. I, I still remember one of the, the first EHS tapes that I got was uh, Godzilla versus Megalon or whatever. And it had that great cover <laughs> where they're both on top of the World Trade Center for some reason, like <laughs> down. I come by that sort of thing. Really, honestly, I think Guillermo does, too. And this is one of the great things about working with him is you work with a lot of directors in Hollywood, and you can tell some of them are kind of going through the fanboy motions and like, oh, yeah, you know, this is the cool thing to like or talk about. But like uh, Guillermo, he's a total genuine fanboy about this sort of thing, and he's really easy to talk to. as a fan of this sort of thing because you have the same vocabulary, you have the same sort of reference points, and uh, it doesn't feel like work at all. It feels like you're just sort of messing around in a sandbox, like you're really getting away with something. Like, I can't believe people are paying us to do this. <laughs> I just, I, I have this mental image of the two as you as like six-year-olds with action figures, and then they do this, and then they do this, and there's a team of like writers behind you going, yes, and then this will actually happen. <laughs> That's basically it. That's basically it. As we all know, the proper way to play with action Action figures is you hold one at a 25 degree angle and the other at a 90 degree angle and you smash them together real quick. <laughs> which happens and always, in movie. And always at the groin, which is the weird part. <laughs> I just kept smashing them in the groin over and over and it just gave me some weird satisfaction. There needs to be a movie about that. Really. We gotta put that in the sequel. We gotta have a picking a kaiju in the groin. Like that's uh, <laughs> the missed that opportunity. Jonathan and I here on Nerdy Show, we're the Wicked Anime guys. We run a show called Wicked Anime. And as we called it, this movie was Love Letter to the Otaku. You had to have been inspired by some anime, at least. Do you have a favorite anime? Absolutely. Um, Actually, my favorite anime, weirdly enough, is not explicitly a giant robot anime. That's awesome. Um, My favorite would have to be Fooly Cooly. Yes! (laughs) That's a good one. I remember the very first time I saw it, I hated it. I was was like, what is this? And I was so frustrated by its weirdness. But it totally won me over. You know, after a few nights of watching it, like, it it got to be sort of an appointment. 
it's one of the very few things I've seen that's been able to like endear me so dramatically from what my initial reaction was. It's so weirdly like sexual and <laughs> playful and colorful and just really captures the whole coming of age transitional moment, I think, in a way that a lot of things don't yeah, or you can, try to, but fail. You can really take a note from the action sequences, too. You you just, like, totally struck Jonathan's fan chord, because that was, um... <laughs> it's, it's mine. That's Jonathan's favorite anime of all time, too, so, wow. That was that was incredible. <laughs> so, you two are married now. Yeah, yeah we gotta, Travis, we, you gotta come over to my house and watch it sometime. And... I, I watch it semi-regularly. Like, I'll show it to people that have no familiarity with anime at all. And I'm like, no, we're going to sit down and we're going to watch this and it's going to blow your mind. <laughs> and, 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 and it does. It, it, you know, I want a lot of people over with that. It's just, I feel like it's a really tightly constructed series. I feel like when I show people that anime, they, they often really look confused at the end and go, why did you show me that? I don't get it. And then they never watch it again. <laughs> One of the things that I've noticed in anime a lot, and this isn't always the case, but it's a feeling that I usually get it's generally the opposite of Fooly Cooly. Like, it starts off and you're like, yeah, I'm with this. I get exactly what's happening. You know, but then by the end, you're like, wait, what? <laughs> Something with someone's energy goes to did what now? Like, <laughs> but what I think is so great about Fooly Cooly is it starts off weird right off the bat. There's no, like... Hmm, this is a this is a fairly conventional setup that we're going to turn on its head later. No, it starts off on its head. It's well, they out. only gave it six episodes, so they're like, this doesn't have enough time to get weird. It has to be weird. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I'm wondering now that we're on this. Obviously, we're not talking about Pacific Rim anymore. But have you have you <laughs> heard of a, have you heard of a little show called Big O? I love Big O. Yeah. Oh my gosh, how can you not love Big O? Is that where the rocket elbow came from? Because I was thinking of the piston elbow <laughs> Big O every time I saw that. Actually, um, Inferno does a bit of a piston thing with uh, one of her fists when she's pounding uh, Otachi. Usually she punches and she punches, but there's this one where it's literally the fist comes out from the arm and slams uh, I, and slams Otachi's head and then retracts back in. <laughs> Big O, I think, is, is really... I, I love it because it's such a mash of genres. You know, like mm-hmm. it's, I love the kind of Art Deco, old school noir thing, and but sometimes there's a giant monster that attacks. <laughs> <laughs> now, <laughs> I love that. We've discussed this on the Wicked Anime podcast a whole bunch of times, and tell me what you think. <laughs> Live action Big O, John Hamm as Roger Smith. <laughs> I see that shit. I yes. <laughs> the question is not what you see it, Travis. It's what you write it. Oh, well, that's. <laughs> If offered, I could not possibly refuse. <laughs> All right. Unless I was doing Pacific Rim too, which hopefully fingers crossed. <laughs> Getting back to Pacific Rim, I actually have a really important question. Um, one of the most important things in the film for me is that the female Makamori is not a love interest. She's more of a partner. The whole movie, you're like, oh, they're going to get together. They're going to sleep together. They're going to kiss. They don't. And that is my favorite part because I feel like love interests always fuck up action movies and it's there for yes. no reason. Did you consciously decide to do that or was someone like no 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 don't make them do that it, it sort of evolved that way and mm. i think a lot of it evolved actually in the editing and in the cutting of the movie they shot one with a kiss and they shot one without a kiss mm. and it was one of those things where you know you have all the footage of the movie and you're putting it together and you're assembling it and you just have to sort of feel out where it's going and i think to their credit they realized 
this doesn't really make any sense, you know, now that we've got it on screen. You know what I mean? Love interests almost never uh, make sense in an action movie. And that's why I was like, when the movie ended, I was like, you serious? They never got together, kiss or anything? I fucking love it. It was amazing that you did it. Because I've never seen that in an action movie before. The problem usually is that it feels extremely rushed because there's so much other stuff happening. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So it, it feels really obligatory. It's like, well, I guess we kiss now or whatever, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, so so I, I think that's usually the problem. Also, another thing with Pacific Rim, them sort of being in each other's heads, you know, it's, it's really sort of a really intimate conceit. And if you're going to go the love interest route, you can't do half measures, right? Like, you can't mm. be like, well, I guess we love each other now. Like, you've spent this whole journey, like, basically in each other's subconscious you know what I mean? Like, not to say, like, that they won't end up together at some point down the road. I honestly don't know what's going to be in store for their relationship. Whatever it is, and whichever characters end up together, and whichever characters end up as friends or whatever, I'm a firm believer that it should feel earned. It shouldn't feel like, you know, you're going through obligatory plot beats. I Which, agree with everything you just said. I mean, that was that was <laughs> one of the best parts about Pacific Rim. There were a lot of things where it seemed like it was winking at the audience saying, oh, yeah. I know what you're expecting, but check it out. Here's a hero who's already dealt with this shit. Yeah. Enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. Great. yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I love what Guillermo says it about him. He says, you know, when he was talking to, to Charlie about playing the character, he said, there's a lot of like complex heroes in movies today. Raleigh is not complex. <laughs> like, I want to tell you that right off the bat. Like, Raleigh is uh, he's a guy, he's, he's dealt with some stuff, but, you know, he's the sort of guy who. He's simply heroic. He does the right thing, you know, because that's what he is. That, and that's the kind of good person that he is. I think there was something, you know, that uh, that resonated with Charlie about that. One of my favorite scenes in the movie was right in the beginning with the boat. The kaiju shows up and the guys are on the boat. They're like, oh, no, we are going to die. And then gypsy danger is just right there picks up the boat puts it away that like digs into my soul because i'm like it defined yeah. it defined yeah. his character well, right there and you're because you know what you think of that and you're just like yeah that's a manly thing to do you know that's what you do <laughs> as a hero save lives and kick ass yeah so. yeah, yeah and then well i remember the first time i saw that whole opening scene it was a really fraught experience for me because I knew what was coming. You know what I mean? And they're so happy. It feels like everything's going so great and so awesome. And then, like, it's so gut-wrenching. Like, when Yancey gets ganked out and that Gypsy falls on the beach and Raleigh kind of stumbles out. Like, it's so... The first time I saw it, I, I was... I, I mean, I knew it was going to happen, but I was stunned by, by how hard they hit that beat, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I loved how hard they hit it. There's layers and layers of backstory and world building that happens in this film, but it seems like Pacific Rim really only scratched the surface of that world. How much material do you actually have written for it? We could do an indefinite number of graphic novels. We Done. could do an animated series. Probably a prequel movie and at least two sequels. So yeah, yeah, there's a lot of... Are you confirming so, these I, right now? No, Are you confirming no. that these will happen so right you've now? Just, you've just laid out the next five years of my life to look forward to <laughs> what, what you're telling me. I don't me have now. to die I can't, now. I can't, I can't confirm that anything. Is gonna, I mean, we're still talking about like what to do next with it. And I think, you know, you're probably more likely to see another graphic novel before another movie. But yeah, all the other stuff is stuff that has variously come up in conversation. And when we were building the world around the movie, we wanted to build something that was bigger than the movie. We wanted there to be tons of stuff that we weren't going to get to. The whole idea being that 
we weren't just building kind of a scaffolding around the movie. We were building a world in which the movie could take place, like a world in which other stories could take place, that it could become its own sort of expanded universe in a really genuine way and not in sort of the obligatory, like, tie-in kind of way where you're tiptoeing in between the stories of the main characters. No, like, we wanted there to be a possibility where you could have to see a grim story that didn't have any overlapping characters from previous stuff. And we have those characters and we have those stories. I'm the um, only one here that has read Pacific Rim uh, Year Zero. My shop sold out, dude. What do you want from me? <laughs> Way to throw us under the bus, man. Or under the Jaeger, I guess. Nah, I'm just calling you guys out. But uh, Punch I, you. I, just, I, I actually really loved it. I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, the one with the, um, the ferry captain and oh, yeah, the, yeah, the news yeah. reporter. By yeah. the way, the the end with the spoiler uh, alert. Are, are you gonna, dude, are you gonna like spoil the comic for us? <laughs> no, I'm just gonna He's say gonna spoil that it for Travis. It made me cry. I'm just gonna say that I teared up. I cried some man tears. It was man tears though, not real, not that, not that regular makes, tears. That makes me happy because I think one thing when I was writing the novel was you know it has this such a badass Alex Ross cover on it, you know, and everyone's seen the trailers by that point. I wanted the graphic novel to be the sort of thing that you picked up and you got to the end and you felt sort of like, wow, I didn't expect to feel as hard as I did about that. You know what I mean? Like, I wanted it to be like a more intimate story than the movie and a more like poignant story, I think, than the movie. Because I I think, you know, movies, especially action movies, are so focused and they're so purposeful and, and deliberately paced. And with the graphic novel, I really wanted to be like, you know, let's spend some time and just see what these characters say to each other and whatever. Um, and that was really fun to write. I, I really, I'd really love to do another one at some point in the future. Was uh, Zero Year your first comics work? Yeah, that was my absolute first crack at a comic book. It was a very steep learning curve, I think, because, you know, comic books and movies are, are compared very casually a lot. You know, like it, it's often observed that, oh, yeah, comic books, they look like movie storyboards, so there must be a lot of similarities. I think they are more different than they are similar is what I found um, <laughs> in writing. Because it's like in a movie, the audience is such a slave to the pacing of the movie. You're kind of a prisoner there for two hours, you know, like, and, <laughs> and the movie's two hours and you're witnessing it. But with, uh, with a graphic novel or a comic book, you can stay on a page as long as you want to. You can go back and, and read something else. Or you can just put it down and go make a sandwich and come back to it later. You really have to keep that in mind when you're writing a comic book versus when you're writing a movie. You have to keep in mind the strengths of the various medium. And that's what I really try to do when writing it. So I heard that your original treatment for the film was a 25-page thing. Early in the process, I don't believe you'd started uh, collaborating with Del Toro intimately yet on the actual world or anything. How different? Is that 25-page document from what ended up as the finished product? I think uh, the details of it are, are very different. A lot of the supporting characters are, are totally changed, but the theme, the tone, the concerns of the original outline are all, are all mirrored in the movie. It really, like, when you start developing a movie like this, one of the things that goes bad when things go bad it's that it, it starts to say something different from what you originally intended to say. Like the tone starts to drift dramatically away from the tone and the themes that you wanted initially, because it's always going to change. It's always going to change. It's never going to be exactly the same as it was. But when it happens the good way, it changes in a way that's still moving towards the common goal that you had to begin with. It sounds like the collaborative process this time around was was very conducive to... It sounds like you just got in a room with a lot of like-minded people that all had a similar vision, so everything they added contributed as opposed to drifting, like you said, away from the tone you wanted. 
Exactly, exactly. And and I, I think on every level, not, not just piano, but I think in this case, what really benefited the movie was the producers were were very savvy about what the tone was and what they liked about it. And, you know, and were genuinely interested in making the same movie that the rest of us wanted to make. And I think there's no replacement for having the umbrella of good producers on a movie like this. It can totally be the difference between something terrible and something great. Like when you see like a bunch of talented people who you really like make an awful, awful movie and you're like, how did that happen? It was probably the producers. (laughs) Yeah, we usually blame the producers. (laughs) How many of those original 25 pages just said robot punches on them? Um, Well, it's funny because I think writing action scenes is actually really difficult because, you know, what takes maybe a few seconds to play out when you're watching it on a movie, like on paper, you're constantly struggling with how much of the action to explain. Like he punches, then he pulls back. Like there's just not a lot of language for like for how a fight plays out. The more specific you are, the more boring and technical it sounds. So it's it's definitely it's a a needle that you're always trying to thread. I really like action scenes are incredibly difficult to write. Like everybody like talks about like, oh good dialogue and all this. Dialogue's pretty easy. (laughs) You have sort of a conversation in your head, you know, and you write it up. Action scenes are incredibly hard to write. Incredibly Mm -hmm. hard. There's uh, been a huge, huge amount of Pacific Rim fan art, especially the Russians. People are in love with the Russians. Some are safe for work. Others are not, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) So our question is... Will we see them in Pac Rim <laughs> <No>. 2? <laughs> no, because the, the headcanon of the fan groups no, no, no. have said I'm, it's fine. Tony, they're dead. I'm just saying, no, they're, it's fine. They, they could have swum away. No, they, they're dead. Died. They're dead, Sorry. man. Could have swum yeah, away. They're dead. They're totally dead. <laughs> they're totally yeah, dead, man. Right here, Tony. Probably not in Pacific, probably not in Pacific Rim 2, but like there's such a huge gap between the first kaiju attack and the beginning of the movie, and there's such a deep backstory and room for more stories there. But just because somebody died in the movie, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you'll never see them again or that you'll never see them on screen again. That was totally intentional. Like, you're really, like, if they died in the movie, you're seeing the end of their story, but you may not have seen the beginning. I accept your answer, Travis Beecham. (laughs) (laughs) I do get a lot of people being like, oh, did so-and-so survive? Or can you make it so that so-and-so survived? And a lot of people about Chuck, too, seriously, like, want to bring Chuck back, which really baffles me because it's like, that's the best thing that he did. Like, in the whole movie, <laughs> like, that's the most heroic, greatest thing. Like, you take that away from him, and he's just this jackass, right? Like, like <laughs> his moment, his hero moment was being like, you take the shot, you know? And, and, like, that was a real sort of, like, unexpected turn for him. And you take that away, and you just have this guy who's been curiously belligerent to Raleigh the entire time. (laughs) And that, I think, there can be no heroes in a world where heroes can't die. You know what I mean? Because it's the possibility that they're going to die. It's the risk that they know that they're taking. That's what makes it sort of a big endeavor. That's what makes it a sacrifice worth telling a story about. You find the character that everybody seems to love and you kill them because everybody loves them. It makes it that much better. Exactly. Exactly. Well, yeah, I I think um, it's been forever since I've seen Speed. This is one of my favorite stories that Joss Whedon usually tells or whatever about like when he was brought on to write Speed and there was 
kind of an annoying character who died and and nobody really liked him and one of the notes they gave was to punch his character up and make him cool and so he he made him funny and he made he made the character really great and then he still died at the end and the studio was like well we well now we have to now we have to not kill him and Josh was like are you crazy now is when you have to kill him yeah yeah <laughs> of course Josh Whedon would say that <laughs> he yeah, lives yeah. by that and others now die by people it people like him the worst thing I think when a character dies and you just don't give a shit you know like that yeah. oh man yeah you know you're supposed to be sad like when somebody dies you know like when it's just like you're just getting someone out of the way like, that character was never necessary to begin with that's why Paul Reiser lasted so long in Aliens because he was an <laughs> asshole <laughs> and you were like why isn't he dead yet <laughs> probably why they did it yeah so um I found some erotic fan fiction <laughs> You're already there. You're already um, into that. Already for, into that. Uh, it's very short. Are you going to uh, read that uh, to him? I, I thought maybe the person who wrote this on the internet, Narcathon, who probably would never think in a million years the screenwriter Pacific Rim would hear <laughs> Are you going to respond afterwards and be like, oh, by the way, this is what happened? <laughs> maybe. Travis Beecham heard this. Oh, my uh, God. So, it's, it, like I said, very short. Just want to know your thoughts on on this little gem. I'll try not to laugh when you're reading it. Knock yourself, knock yourself up. <laughs> Pacific Rim job. But, <laughs> already, already. But, but it's the it's already. the obvious joke. Okay. It's the, I mean, my I mean, title I'm, for the sequel. How, how many, Travis? How many times have you heard that? More times than the people who say it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It, it, it's funny because it's someone every once in a while somebody will be like, "Hey, for a Pacific Rim job." <laughs> like, like they're totally like you can see it in their eyes. I've got it. I've got it. <laughs> and I'm going to say something that he's never like. There's so you've never heard stuff. that before. Like, that. It, it boggles my mind that like, <laughs> and even to this day, I, I keep hearing it from people who tell me as if for the first time, and, and I never quite know what to say. Here, here's what you should do: you should act really confused, and just be like, "What? What is that?" And to the point that they have to, they get because <laughs> all of a sudden it. they have to explain to you what a rim shot is. <laughs> well, it's like I don't get it. Yeah. So, okay, anyway, so here, we go, here we go. We're here all go. adults here. here just read it. Yeah, I won't laugh. Yes, this is a story for adults. Crimson Typhoon and a kaiju stared into each other's eyes, oh, I'm, I'm looking for that one thing. They got on top of each other, kissing, touching, and then Crimson Typhoon slipped his robotic penis into the giant vagina of the kaiju. <laughs> then Crimson came oil all inside of the kaiju. The kaiju came poison. All over the robotic penis of Crimson Typhoon. I can't take more of this. <laughs> the pilots of Cherno Alpha began bumming each other, coming inside of him. That left Mako playing with her clit. She came, and the Jaegers all exploded. The end. Penis. <laughs> Um, wow, that's some, that's some good writing. You, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I, I can spot a few problems. <laughs> so he's not a shoe in to help write the sequel. Well, first of all, he's got the genders reversed because technically the Jaegers are all women and the Kaiju are all male. That's true. They do have they do have nautical people inside them. The Jaegers. Yep. Well, what about that pregnancy then? <laughs> um, hey, there's always exceptions to any rule, I guess. Right? Um, that is number one, easily one of the top questions that I think I get is, where did the baby come from? And, you know, I don't want to be that person who explains the birds and the bees to someone if they haven't already, you know, had that conversation <laughs> with their parents. But yeah, I, I, am, sort of, I am sort of surprised by, by how often they get, uh, they get brought up. Well, people say like, oh, the kaiju, they're all clones, so where did the baby come from? 
And I want to be like, you know, clones can have babies, right? Like, that's not, you know, like, they're clones. So whatever you can do, they can do. <laughs> the thing that I thought of is that the kaiju itself, this is just me spitballing here, but uh, that it was built to be a convoy. So it had like a monster ready to go inside it. I think that's what Guillermo was thinking. I say Guillermo on this particular point because the baby was very specifically his idea. There was one in the original draft, there was one kaiju that kind of seemed to die after it sent off an EMP and seemed to be this dead husk. So they started cleaning up and then the husk broke open and there was another full-size kaiju inside of the husk and no working babies to stop it. And that idea at some point became a uh, baby kaiju in the, in the pregnant kaiju. I think that was Guillermo's idea specifically because he, um, he thought it'd be really great. You know, you have these characters going inside this huge carcass to start harvesting organs. And then, you know, there's something alive inside the carcass with them. And, you know, it's just an irresistibly terrifying and disgusting idea. Oh, it was cool as hell. I mean, I didn't see it coming. I'm just, I'm just going to say it's because the, the kaiju got that close to Ron Perlman. Yeah, that's pretty much. <laughs> Instant impregnation. Sure. It, it happens to a lot of women. I'm some men. The, the kaiju in general are, are engineered to be as massively inconvenient as possible. <laughs> so it's like, even, you know, they come and they trash the city, but even when you kill them, their blood is poisoned. Even in death, there's this massive disaster. So yeah, no, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past them at all to start cramming kaiju through full of other kaiju. <laughs> So these, it's like these, a turducken. These... <laughs> <laughs> I, you say massively inconvenient kaijus and all. I just picture like the streaming of human-sized kaijus that are like paying with pennies at convenience stores <laughs> and forgetting their paperwork no, at home at the DMV. I never thought of that term for kaiju, you know, just seeing it stomping through buildings and stuff. Like, oh, well, that's just annoying. <laughs> <laughs> it's high time we had a short track break. And what else could we play but Adam Warrock's love song to Pacific Rim? A little track called Gypsy Danger. Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. that it does take place so far after the first Kaiju attack because I, I feel like if the movie actually started with the first Kaiju attack and you played it out as an ordinary movie, you know, you wouldn't even have any Jaegers invented until, like, well into the second act. And I really wanted this to be like, no, this is the world, you know, we're dealing with this. And one of the things I, I like about that is it sort of it inverts a lot of, like, apocalyptic movies. It's like, what is, you know... What if Independence Day began, like, several years into the whole alien invasion, where it's like, oh, crap, another one, you know? Like, <laughs> when, you see the, when you see the ship come down. Like, I love that they have shelters, you know, and they have sort of protocols. It's still scary when it happens, but it's like, I love seeing that. We're, we're kind of dealing with it, you know what I mean? Like, we're working it out. Like, I, I think that's really interesting how, um, how even the craziest disasters become normal to us after a certain amount of time. That really helped your tone because this is an apocalypse movie in a sea of apocalypse movies that was fun, that knew yeah. how seriously <laughs> to take itself and didn't make me feel like going home and saying, well, that was a thing I saw. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, 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 that was very deliberate, I think. Especially just in things, you look at like the color palette. I think, you know, when they're in Hong Kong with all the neon and the purples and the blues and just all the really vivid colors, it looks totally different from any sort of apocalypse movie. 
I think you see where, where you know, everything's really washed out and bleached and gritty and dirty. And I love how technical like, Pacific Rim looks. Yeah. And putting sort of the time scale towards the end of the war as opposed to the beginning of it, I, I think it really does allow us to have that sort of tone in which, you know, we're, we're leaning towards the resilience of humanity rather than sort of the, the inevitable doom of humanity, uh, and which I think is, you know, it's not like there's any shortage of the other kind of movie, you know what I mean? Like, it's a, yeah. valid, it's a valid sort of position, it's a valid sort of form of storytelling, but I think when I started writing Pacific Rim, it's like, no, we've heard that story before. We need another kind of story, right? Like, we need the more uplifting one, too. We didn't actually see them even you know it was it was after the Jaegers were built it wasn't even when they were winning it was actually when they started losing again which was amazing to me yeah yeah well it's like sort of this faded glory of the golden age and it has sort of a kind of nostalgia to it and i think from a design perspective that was always a real challenge too because you wanted you know when you looked at like Jersey danger or whatever you, you wanted to see these machines from the very beginning and even as how i described them in the script as sort of vaguely nostalgic or like that they provoke this sort of like, oh, those were the days kind of feeling in you, which is a challenge to get across to the audience who didn't live through those days, right? Like you're, <laughs> yeah. you're trying to uh, instill in them some, some big uh, disconnected sense of, of nostalgia for a golden age that they didn't actually witness. And I, I think the designers are really really came up with some great looks and some great designs that I think really pulled that off. I mean, to my eyes. Well, what's your favorite Jaeger? What's your favorite Kaiju? If you can choose a baby amongst all the babies that you've had. It's really hard to choose. I, I'm, I think in the movie, Gypsy Danger would probably be my favorite just because like, yes, she's <laughs> the first one and she's like, as she was there since the beginning, you know, like since the outline. And, and I just remember this is the first one I described. I said that she was blue. I said that she had like pen up nose art on her. And it just, it just, it so fit from the very beginning exactly what I described her to be. And, and even seeing her, like every time I see her, it's like, oh, that's the one. Like that's, you know, that's the original one. Because all the other ones, none of them were in the first draft. <laughs> were in the first draft at all. Like, uh, not that there were no Jaegers in the first draft, but, you know, their origins and nationalities and names. We're constantly switching, and we were constantly looking for the right number of Jaegers to have in it, to be from the right places, and uh, the right broad representation of the Pacific region before we finally settled on that one. But Gypsy Danger was in it from, from the very, very beginning. Hygie-wise, I really like Flattering, the big Category 5 at the end, just because I, I like the sort of like the hammerhead look. Um, and I, I just see yeah, such a great, you know... Reveal coming out of the pit and towering over Striker Eureka with a big pinnacle pale. Like, I just, you know, it's a very, it's very regal and very terrifying kaiju, I think. Is there a, a protocol to naming kaiju? I mean, typically, most of them seem like descriptors in the language of who first identifies them. But uh, I remember thinking, you know, in the, in the opening scene, they're like, oh, this one's called Knifehead. I mean, they, they knew that right away. So there was some guy who's like, I get to name this one. <laughs> do you mean like even in world or uh, or when we were named? in world? If if yeah, such an information named, exists, they're named by uh, the Pacific monitoring station. I think it's in the Mariana Islands that uh, that watches the breach, and um, and they have like a database of code names that they kind of randomly pull from. Although sometimes you know if they see a sonar profile, you know that might inspire names. So that's clearly the case with Bipet or whatever that that inspired that name. There's basically this team of people that all they do is like watch the breach 
and keep an eye on, on you know, on the whole region and, and track things coming out of it. And they sort of like, uh, whoever assigns hurricane names, to hurricanes, right. they, they assign yeah. uh, the Kaiji names to Kaiji. How old does like a, a job like that pay? That's <laughs> probably like seven fifty an you hour. Have to, you have to love your work. <laughs> Speaking about the the, the, the breach. You've got a, a trans-dimensional rift. Uh, dinosaurs may have come from there. Um, there. So basically a rift that involves dinosaurs. What are the chances that the world of Kaiju and the dino-evolved world from the Super Mario Brothers film are one and the same? <laughs> wow. Very good. You're just very, very good. <laughs> oh, man. I think, I think you're inevitably you're looking at the Super Mario world. A millennia down the line. <laughs> so you're telling me that the, the creator of the kaiju is a very regal sort, and his name is Koopa. Oh, that's that's <laughs> yeah, what no, I'm hearing. Bowser. Well, his name's so, yeah, he's, he's Bowser the, uh, the 300. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody better call a plumber. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't wait to see that crossover. <laughs> You. You're welcome. You're yeah. you're all welcome. Your tools by your side will never let you down. Why you always got to sing about tools, Mario? You're welcome, Tumblr. <laughs> oh lord, it's going to explode. You have, you have killed Tumblr. Right, so I, I have a bit of a serious question now. This is, this is a legit serious question okay. now because that's what I do. Sober to- I ask the hard questions. Yeah, we all want to see, obviously. A sequel to this yeah. movie at some point in some form or other. It, Guillermo del Toro's been yeah. saying all kinds exactly. of stuff about now, it. Now, everyone in the, the nerd communities, they love this movie. Everyone not in the nerd communities who do see this movie, they love it. Everyone I know who's seen this movie loves it. Now, why is it that the critics are all being assholes and hating this movie? Every critic's review I've read is just them not liking this movie. And I, I really? think, like, yes, and I think like they're going... To somehow irreparably damage Pacific Rim. Well, I mean, the money's already there. I hope so. I'm just puzzled that the critics. We've done probably better if I uh, better responses from the critics than than I thought. Like, you know, I really loved like when we had a good write up and and like with Kenneth Turan or whatever in the in the L.A. Times because it's like you know first of all that's your hometown paper and just reading that you know like that my hometown paper likes my movie like it's a it's a good thing. But I think. When you make something like this, and it's like, all right, the trailers are going to show robots fighting giant monsters. Really, you can afford a certain amount of bad reviews. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, I, but I, and I don't mean, I don't mean financially. I mean emotionally. Like it's like, <laughs> like as soon as I had the idea, I figured, you know, yeah, you know what? There's probably going to be some critics who aren't going to like this. You know, and uh, just because you know they don't like CGI or they don't like whatever. But that's fine. It's like, you know, it's, it's no skin off my back because when you're putting this stuff together, the worst question that you can ask yourself is like, what do other people want to see? I, I think that is the beginning of totally losing your way. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know what? There's no sense that pleasing them would mean anything to you if you did it. You know what I mean? There's no sense that like, oh, great, they like it. I hate it, but they like it. There's, you know, that's not a good feeling, you know? Like, that's, that's you don't, you don't get, get a bed happy thinking like, well, at least other people like it. Mm-hmm. Um, My no, dreams I, have been compromised in earnest. Yeah, yeah. First and foremost, like, it has to be your thing, and it has to be something that you're content with it as it is. I, when, I, when I first had the idea... It was like the the only thing pushing me to write it was just the fact that I really wanted to see the movie, you know? Like, it's yeah. not, not that I wanted to be praised for or that, you know, I, I, I wanted anything to come of it 
through my career, I just really wanted to see it. Like the movie didn't exist and I felt like something like it should. And uh, when you create movies or any sort of creative endeavor, like with that in mind, and you're really, you're serving your own taste and you're serving yourself as an audience, you're never going to work a day in your life or it's never going to feel like work because you're always doing something that you want to see, you know, and you're always going to be happy with the result. Don't write Oscar bait. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel like if you if you made a version that it was all in French with subtitles on it and labeled it as a foreign movie, the critics probably would have loved it. Just... <laughs> probably. That's some tasteful male nudity, too. <laughs> and a balloon. You need one balloon floating. Yeah. <laughs> Looking to the future, obviously all of our collective fingers are crossed for a Pacific Rim 2. And the black hole to finally be that would be That would be amazing, yeah. <laughs> Um, but what can you tell us about Ballistic City? Oh, Ballistic City is really great. I, I, I always say stuff like saying, you know, it's good screenwriting got you into heaven. And uh, who's to say it doesn't? <laughs> that would be my submission, the pilot for Ballistic City. I would be like, there you go. And then I would confidently walk past as they were reading. <laughs> like, I, I love it. I love the hell out of it. Like, it's really... It feels like it, it sort of came from like a space muse or whatever. Like, I have no idea. Like, it just sort of popped in my head one day. It's basically this sort of sci-fi Blade Runner-esque crime down thing that takes place on a generation ship about midway through its, uh, through its journey. So it's this really self-contained city ship thing and this crime drama that takes place on it. And it's, it's a hell of a lot of fun to write. At the moment, you know, it's still in development at AMC. We're still, like, fine-tuning the pilot and trying to decide what to do with it. But, you know, I'm really optimistic about, about where it'll go because uh, they're, you know, they're really enthusiastic about it and they don't really have a sci-fi show yet and they really want one. So Ballistic City as a series hasn't been officially greenlit then? No, no, okay. no. But, uh, but it's being developed with the enthusiasm and attention to detail that can only come about through them really wanting to do it. So, like, it's, you know, it's not one of those things where it's like, oh, you know, well, we're sitting on it. I don't know what's happening with it. No, it's like we're, we're really, really, like, working on fine-tuning it and, and getting it together, and everyone's really serious about it. And I mean, I'm personally just excited that it's going to be on, on AMC. Yeah, it bodes well. It bodes there's well. Some class, there's some classy motherfuckers over there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like so, my hell, hell on wheels. Can't get enough of it. My Breaking Bad and my Mad Men's. I mean, Breaking Bad's like my, it's basically my favorite show on TV. So yeah, no, I was really excited when it ended up there. I think it felt like I'm right home. Did you see last week's episode? Wasn't it awesome? I loved it. I loved <laughs> yeah. it. What I love about it is, is it's like anything can change at any time. You know, like it's like, well, they're not going to find out because that would change the whole show. You know, like, no, the show can entirely change. You know, like uh, uh, at any turn. And I think that's what I really love about a lot of shows on AMC. And that's what I love about having both City at AMC, too. It's because I think as a writer... It's really fun to have the possibility to sort of change things and shake things up, you know, and have a story that doesn't repeat itself, but but has a trajectory. You know, guys, it occurs to me now that we are no longer talking to Travis Beach and that I should have asked him whether or not he is drift compatible with Guillermo del Toro. You should have, because it was better than any of my questions. Thank you. Yes, it was. It was so much better. Oh, my God. (laughs) My questions were... No, mine were great. Anyway. However, I think we can safely assume he is, because, I mean, like he was saying, he's very, very... 
in tune with what Guillermo was trying to create. So. He said he loved working with what, us. So. What if you're drift compatible with like a dog? Dog is man's best friend, so obviously all humans we, are compatible with all dogs. So if, if so and all dogs go telling, to heaven, therefore you're drift compatible with heaven. So what you're saying? Okay, first off, everybody's drift compatible with God, clearly because he is in all of us. But <laughs> nope, no, no. The dog. We've got the. We've already got the dog. We've already got the dog from Pacific Rim. Remember, there was the bulldog. Hmm. Now, right. when the dad, who no longer has a son, yes, has a pilot, oh, a Jaeger. I should have asked that. Oh, they're gonna make a dog Jaeger. It's not even a dog Jaeger. It's just a dog harness. What if it's a cat Jaeger, but it controlled by a dog? <laughs> what that if that's be, the twist at the end? That would be very confusing. It's and gonna be called because, Tiger Wolf because you still have to have two pilots. It'll be a dog and a mouse. Cat puppy. No, you just said it was the guy in the bulldog. You dumbass. But you see, <laughs> now we're talking about making a cat Jaeger. All right, we've gone too far. Don't make a cat drink Jaeger, it'll throw up or die. That is okay, the tagline for the movie. <laughs> Those throw are both up or die. <laughs> I'm perfectly okay with this. Because the tagline for the first movie was like, go big or go extinct. So this one has to be throw up or die. Why was there not a super move in the movie called the Jaeger oh Bomb? Oh, because uh, it's too obvious. I mean, come on. And that's obvious. technically what Gypsy Danger was. No, Jaeger Bomb. I'm that's just true, putting though. it out there. And bringing it back to our uh, aforementioned Nerdy Show Prime episode, How I Met Your Mothra. During that show, we um, created a sitcom, a giant monster sitcom that was played in little segments in between the different parts of the show. I highly recommend you listen to How I Met Your Mothra, the whole show, but we have, as of this episode's release, put just those sitcom segments up, and uh, we'll link to where you can listen to those. And share it with your friends. Wow, that sounded like camera. Yeah, it did. On to the next thing. Guys, Nerdy Show's listeners supported. The entire network exists because you guys graciously send us money and continue to support us and keep us aloft and help us do all these cool projects and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We can't exist without you, and we need your eternal love, which is why... We do support drives every month, and this time, we have an action-packed, highly competitive support drive for you. With competition. Over the summer, we released our Paranoia XP one-shot, and we played Paranoia XP as a one-shot, role-playing, radio drama, comedy campaign. I didn't do too well. Nobody did very well, and it was fantastic (laughs) to listen to. Paranoia was chosen by you guys, the fans, the listeners, but now the race is on again. You get to pick the next one we're doing. Also, I'd like to add before I get into this, Wicked Anime has just done a two-part one-shot episode for Big Eyes, Small Mouth, the anime RPG, and uh, it was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. So you should totally check that out, and we'll have links to where you can check out both of those things on this episode's page. But we got to talk about all the awesome people who've supported us so far. By the time you're hearing this episode, the landscape has changed completely of like who's in the lead, what's in the running, and all that. Here's what we've got right now, and the competition has been fierce Within four days' time, we have successfully reached the bare minimum funding that we need for the month to keep all of our servers and electricity and such aloft. So thank you, guys. And what we're reaching towards this month is a $900 mark, whereupon we will release a full-length episode of Dungeons & Doritos, which was recorded but never released because it's entirely out of continuity due to a big, complete clusterfuck, which I explained in a previous episode. So it's an alternate reality episode of Dungeons & Doritos. Yes, more or less. It's the episode 25 that never happened. The one shot. Hold on, 25? That's like a reverse of 52, which is the DC new 52. This Don't, is where that exists. No, 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 no. This one doesn't have any editorial mandates. Don't link mandates. it to negativity. Tony. <laughs> <laughs> Stay positive here. Don't yeah, talk see, about that. Just stay positive. So if we hit the $900 mark, then everybody who supports us this month will get that sent to them. Here's what's on the board. We got Star Wreck RPG, Dresden Files, Call of Cthulhu, Sagas Modern, World of Darkness, Dragon Age, D20 Modern, Gamma World, 
Mass Effect, Mouse Guard, Pathfinder, Serenity, Shadowrun, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and other strange. I heard Mouse Guard, um, yes. Serenity, yes. and did I hear Shadowrun? Yes, you did. Oh, fuck me. You no, know what? No, you- seriously, fuck me right now. <laughs> I love Shadowrun, the video game. I like the tabletop, even though I haven't played it, but it sounds great. I want that one. So this is actually, um, we had a, a pre-constructed list where we had some selections that seemed good to us of role-playing systems that we knew we could get a hold of the materials to play. But if listeners have a suggestion for a system that we can easily acquire the materials for and would be easy to play for a one-shot campaign, they can send us a suggestion and we'll approve it. And if they back that up with some funding, it gets added to the board. As of this recording, Star Wreck RPG is in the lead, and we'll talk about what that is in a second, but that whole thing could have changed completely by the time you hear this. It's been moving really fast. BP supported us and said, I've been a listener since season one, only now been able to support you guys. Come to think of it, I don't know how I found out about you guys, as I'm pretty sure that it was before Brian's initial post on nuclear power. Maybe it was from searching the internet for podcasts that sounded interesting. And haha, somehow we won him out. That was that was BP. <laughs> yeah, BP. They haven't been able to fund us for a while because they've been cleaning the gulf up. Their, their funding has been tied up. <laughs> but let's say BP stands for bacon porpoise, <laughs> the most savory serpent of the seas. That is the most sought after. He has a, a prehensile bacon penis. <laughs> Moving on. Moving on. He, he continues. He says, "Listening to the show has opened my life up to more music and entertainment than I knew existed in the nerd community." Real fan of the RPG podcast, and I would be thrilled if you could cast my vote for the World of Darkness RPG one-shot. Great to finally be able to support you guys after all the entertainment you've opened me up to. Expect more of it when I can. Keep up the excellent work. I feel like I should listen to the show now, because he makes me want to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> you asshole. <laughs> it, should, it should open up a whole new world for me. M supported us, and he put Star Wreck RPG on the board. He says, I've pledged 50 of your capitalist American dollars for Star Trek RPG. The game is, in essence, a Star Trek parody if the Federation was composed of utter cowards and fools. All Star Trek, the original series, and next generation knowledge should pretty much apply, with the exception that the characters are rather inefficient and continue to become more so as they level up, raising statistics such as clumsiness, obliviousness, and stupidity. <laughs> Something they counter by gaining special abilities along the way, such as the vulgar butt pinch. That, that <laughs> no, sounds great. I am, that sounds I'm, awesome. Star Trek knowledge, I'm there. It does have some changes that Star Trek fans would have to adjust to. Phasers are now twinklers. Uh, photo- <laughs> <laughs> Photon torpedoes are uh, light balls. <laughs> Impulse engines are shove engines, and so forth. The game characters are typically original creations, such as Captain Dick Hart of the CCP Entry Price. Um, <laughs> and uh, the player characters typically hold officer positions in a starship such as captain chief engineer navigator and with character classes such as incompetent idiot kirk a psychotic loudmouth wharf frustrated grouch mccoy or annoying nerd data what which one is wesley probably Child also annoying petulant. nerd i don't know <laughs> the question is yeah, not... petu- petulant whelp class <laughs> you, you, have, whelp. you have put your vote in for Shadowrun. i'm gonna go ahead and put my vote in for star Wreck. well now that i know what it is i might change my mind it's too late great. you've already cast he your says, vote Brandon. uh the game is based on a finnish indie movie series of the same name but it really doesn't have anything to do with it because the game is basically a star trek parody at heart um and mauron liked that so much he said hey crew throw my 50 dollars towards star Wreck." i like it and those guys have single-handedly made this completely unknown role-playing system a contender because i mean it sounds fucking awesome it does Maron! Maron! 
the um, number one son. Well, you're not. He's not your one number no, one. No, I said son. the the number one. Well, he's son. Colin's number one. Colin, son. let me do it again then. Colin's number one son. There you go. Okay. Brought to you by Nerdy Show. <laughs> David Waller says, "Throw this towards the Dresden Files RPG. Hopefully, we also reach that extra D and D episode." Ethan Kruger said, "For the Dresden Files RPG, because the building's on fire, and it wasn't my fault." <laughs> Aaron Shrewsbury and Garrier also supported Dresden Files, and uh, that, as of this episode's recording, is also the main contender. That and Star Wrecker going head to head, but it's still anybody's game right now. I mean, Lots of it's, things can it's change. The first week of the month, and yeah, and, and every little bit helps. Bryce Harris says thirteen dollars to see you all take on nineteen twenties Call of Cthulhu and earn me even more D and D. I do like the idea of a nineteen twenties tabletop game. Yeah, I roll a twenty. I hear there's a, there's several different eras you can choose to play Call of Cthulhu in, so he specified 1920s. You roll a d20, critical hit, you slap the dame in the behind. <laughs> and rather than, turning around, rather than turning around angrily, she looks at you and goes, ooh. <laughs> and gives a cigarette to her child. Roll a d6 to find out if the child contracts lung cancer. No, that didn't exist back then. There was an interesting suggestion that came to us via Twitter. Midgeter sent us a tweet. He said that he's in favor of chaining Hex uh, in a basement until he writes a Scooby-Doo role-playing game. I'm in favor um, of chaining him in a basement but, regardless. Well, yeah, that, that's true. One of us is going to have to get a basement for that, though. You might be chained in a basement right now for all <laughs> This I is care. Florida. There's no basements. But then I suggested, well, you, got, you want a Scooby-Doo role-playing game. Well, what if we play Call of Cthulhu as a 1920s Scooby-Doo? And I don't know that we're going to do that. Zoinks! But it seems like a pretty good idea. And he said he was, he's very interested in the idea of a flapper Daphne. And I am too. How would a 1920s Scooby sound, though? Probably like an actual dog. Reggie. That's nonsense. That dogs don't speak that way. Cassie Muldrow also backed Cthulhu. Anna Barrich said, Feel like shit for not supporting you guys last month. Throw this in the pot for Sagas Modern. Curious what that's like. Sagas is the system we play Dungeons and Doritos with. And Sagas Modern is a modern day version of the rule book. And the way it works is it's not just like, oh, and here's some guns. It's like, here's some rules for guns. Uh, the way that it by default plays out is kind of like an X-Men kind of campaign. So there's, there's sort of mutants with powers. And I haven't personally played it, but um, what I've heard of it is really sounds really cool, so really exciting. There aren't like dragons, but there's like mutants and weirdos. Yeah, so you can exactly. still breathe fire. You just don't need the scales. Yeah, right. It's actually something we've been toying with the idea of when we do it, we inevitably do a lightning dogs role playing game. We might use Saga's Modern to adapt it. That might be the fastest, most efficient way for us to custom do that. But that remains to be seen. Rachel Bloom says, I love Wicked Anime, Pokeballs of Steelix and Dungeons and Doritos. More! Oh, yeah. Pokeballs. I remember that. That was a good time. Pokeballs will come back after Nerdapalooza is over. Because um, our RPG kind of runs it. Yeah. And. Rachel abstained from putting money towards an RPG saying, I know no matter what you do, it'll be great. Love you guys. You help get me through slave labor during the week. Uh, I really hope that it's not actually slave labor because I don't see how she's able to keep smuggling in a podcast listening device. She may get whipped for it. I mean, there could be some severe repercussions. That's your son off. Anyway, we hope that you're fine, Rachel. If you need, I feel like we should adopt her or get her out of that situation. If we need to, if we need to, it's like what pennies on the day. We can, we can do that. <laughs> Something like that. I mean, I, I don't got the cash for it, but Brandon, where you know, are I don't you? Either, we'll but... send an extraction team. We're ready. <laughs> I've got a hammer somewhere. I'm going it'll be, in. It'll be Brandon in a, in Scooby gear with a hammer. I got a hammer. In Scooby gear with a hammer says so you're going to wear an ascot. I yeah. <laughs> Big Bad Shadow Man said, one buck for each system because I don't give a word that rhymes with buck, which one wins? <laughs> so he, he contributed a dollar to every single system on the list. And then Hexual came in and he said, other Hex here. 
I've been slacking on the whole backing thing lately. So here's two dollars American for every system currently in the running. Ooh. Choices are hard. <laughs> and in doing that, he won a microsode. So we're going to talk about something. <laughs> of course he um, did. <laughs> for ten to fifteen minutes, that uh, you know, that of, of his choosing. Except choices are hard, guys. <laughs> so he said, "I think my donation just earned a microsode." I'm super indecisive and drank what must be near lethal amounts of coffee at work today. So I have super vague suggestions. Toss a coin or something. That For is a, what? That is exactly what we're going to do. We're going to um, toss a coin. Between the worst of the internet, uh, which he describes as potentially with Derpy Show or the Overclocked Remix as guest hosts, or fighting games, if any of the hosts have a history with them. Ooh. Oh, oh yeah, we do. I, I Everyone think, has a history here of fighting games. I think we just games. tossed a coin and it landed on... Both, up, up, down, down. Both of these could be good. I admit that of the two, fighting games definitely promises to have more structure, and we have a lot of people on staff that would be huge fans of it. I'm tempted to just say, well, fighting games. But I extended the option to him, Clay and he said, he said, I tossed a coin to decide, and it, my decision was a coin toss. <laughs> <laughs> I tossed a coin to no, see we talk to 10 if to I was going to do a coin just toss. just means we have to talk for 10 to 15 minutes about the history of coin tosses, their <laughs> impact on society. And... No, 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 no. We can do that. There's a lot of interesting history. Did you see that Twilight Zone episode where the coin landed exactly in the middle and his luck, he, like the whole day, everything mention, great was happening. And the coin landed after at the end or he moved it and then he died. <laughs> it was a great episode. And then back in the Wild West, shoot coins in the air. See, it's great. We, we're already doing it. We're having the microsode right now. Anyway, he goes on to say, uh, keep up the awesome work and I'm proud to support such an amazing network of shows. Seriously, folks, these have really helped when I've been feeling down. Thank you. And thank you to everybody who's contributed. It's like outpouring of love. It's, it's helping it's, us from it's actually, it's actually right now. I promise. Completely amazing and I wonderful. I promised I wouldn't cry. So we got to get a coin and we got to make this decision. I don't own uh, commoner money. If it's not paper, I don't own it. I actually forgot to bring a coin in the room. So <laughs> we don't I, have uh, any. We got to go. Right I have one. Get... I have one. All okay. right. All right. <laughs> Which it's one of you has one? A, uh, 1952 penny. It's really hard to see. So we'll find out. Okay. Just remember, well, it's uh, going to land on the fighting game let's side. Let's say uh, the worst of the... <laughs> <laughs> the, the, wor- the worst of the internet is heads and fighting games is tails. Unless we want All to fight right. you for it. Okay. Mm. And, and I'll be honest, I swear. Alright. <laughs> it is fighting games! Yeah! yeah! yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which technically is still the worst of the internet because there are no bigger assholes than the ones you play fighting games against online. Virtual Fighter 3D! That's my favorite. That shit, that shit over polygon boobies. I love it. Oh man, it masturbates so much to them polygon boobies. It's like, what, four triangles? I'd be the female character, like, high kick, high kick. Oh yeah, I just, I can, I can do high kick with one hand. No, that would be dead or alive. Shut up! I can do high kicks at that. Yeah, you can, but Dead or Alive actually went so far as to put panties in the game. Look, we're already having the microsode, Cap. We just got, like, got, half of it out guys, of the way. You guys remember back before the internet when people would make up stories on the playground about cheat codes, and they're like, in the Sega Genesis version of Mortal Kombat, they have nudalities. <laughs> they there's, didn't. There's one they for didn't. Johnny Cage, and there's one for Sonya Blade. They didn't happen. They didn't and then happen. if they're they fighting didn't. each other, they, they didn't have fuck. them. But but my friends and I did the codes, and uh, uh, it didn't work. And nothing. Nothing happened. It was a virus. <laughs> yes, I said press the code and install the virus onto my Sega Genesis cartridge. <laughs> my Sega Genesis has been hacked. Damn it! Damn this Pop new! Ups. Damn this new modern world! Uh, anyway, uh, thank by fatality. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to this episode of Nerdy Show. It has been our esteemed pleasure, our steamy pleasure, our steamy pleasure. Um, bye. I'm Cap. Goodbye. I'm Tony. Bye. I'm Brandon. Bye. I'm Jonathan. Bye. I'm Andrew. And taking us out. We've got Chicks Dig Giant Robots, the theme song to Megas XLR. I missed that show. By Death Wish 9.
Hey, bro. Thanks for listening to Nerdy Show. Nerdy Show is made possible by a comic shop, Nerdapalooza, and the generous support of listeners like you. <laughs> As listener-supported entertainment, we rely on you to keep this and other shows on the Nerdy Show Network alive by, like, telling a friend and rating and reviewing us on iTunes or making a contribution to our monthly support drives, right? Uh, any size contribution gets you exclusive Nerdy Show audio and images and lets you participate in our monthly support drives. Just go to nerdyshow.com support to chip in, you know? For more episodes of Nerdy Show, as well as other fine programming, community forums, videos, like articles, and like more, like you head over to nerdyshow.com. You can subscribe to all our totally tubular Nerdy Show podcasts via the iTunes store. And for the latest news, follow us on all your favorite social networks. <laughs> Yay! Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 